Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So we have uh, been talking about holiness, and we're going to continue with this theme because it is really quintessential in light of the times we're living in. I think holiness is at an all-time low right now, and uh, it's a call to the church to rise up and be what God has called us to be, holy unto Him, a holy people, a holy nation unto Him. So I've entitled this, Becoming Holy, Becoming Holy. Thank you. So holiness is the concept, is the concept of being set apart in a way that makes us distinct. This idea of holiness originates in God, and it relates to us as believers in both of our physical realm and spiritual realm. We are to be a different people than those around us, those that are in this world, because our Father in heaven is holy. And we are his children, therefore we're called to be like him, right? We're called to be holy like him. The big question is, is what does it mean and how does that happen? What would that look like? How do we become holy? So we're going to explore this for the next couple of weeks. I think you're going to find it fascinating as we jump into this idea that we've been presented with by the Apostle Peter. In fact, I want to read... First uh, Peter chapter 1, 15 through 16, he's been talking about this beautiful, wonderful salvation that has come to us through faith in Jesus and all the benefits and the promises and the blessing that's associated with that. And then he goes on to say this, but as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all of your conduct since it is written you shall be holy for I am holy. He's quoting the Torah. That quote, you shall be holy for I am holy, is found in one of the first five books of Moses. The book is called Leviticus. It's also called the book of holiness. It's in the book of Leviticus that we receive what's called the code of holiness. And that code of holiness, of course, is presented in different categories so that we, the believer, the ones called out of Egypt, right? We, the followers of God, would actually restructure our lives along these lines of holiness so that we look different from all the people of the world around us. This is the essence of holiness. Let me give you some of the main categories. We'll jump into these in the weeks ahead, God willing. We are called to be holy, and yet we have sin in our life. How do we reconcile being holy and yet struggling and at times falling prey to sin? How does that work? Are you holy? Am I holy? And yet we have sin in our life? How is that possible? See, holiness is a state of being. It's something that God gives to us. It's a status, if you will. And that status has a framework to it. 
but it already incorporates the idea that you and I are not perfect. Being holy does not mean that you're perfect. We are not a perfect people. Isn't that true, right? But we're called to be holy. And being holy is coming to terms with our brokenness, coming to terms with our sinfulness, our shortcomings. We can be broken, we can have sin, and still be holy. In fact, one of the very first things that we learn about when it comes to holiness is that God says a holy people is responsible with their sins. See, people that don't love the Lord, have no regard for the Lord, they don't care about their sins. They don't do anything with their sins. They just live their life on their terms. A holy people says, no, 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 no. I don't like this about me. I don't like my shortcomings. I don't like my brokenness. Lord, I repent of that. I bring it to you. Change me. Transform me. See, the Torah teaches us how to be responsible with our sins. We're not going around saying we don't have any sin in our life. That would be hypocrisy. No, we're going around and saying, no, I'm not perfect, but I'm a child of God. I'm not perfect, but I'm holy unto him. And he has given me that status. And now I'm learning how to walk that out. Holiness is a process. It's instantaneous and yet a process. You know, the Big Bang cosmology is that out of nothing, God spoke and everything came into being all at once everywhere. That's why they call it the Big Bang, right? And since that time, it's been expanding outward. Holiness is like that. We receive this status. God makes us, through faith in Jesus, holy, instantaneous. We are, it's like the big bang of holiness. And then it begins to what? Expand throughout our soul, our life, who we are, as it permeates everything over a period of time. So, the first category of holiness is how we manage our sins. We learn that through atonement, confession. We receive cleansing and healing, wholeness ultimately. We experience holiness through those mechanisms. Another one is diet. God says your bodies are holy. Your body is a gift from God, and it's holy, and we're to treat it as holy unto Him. In fact, He says it's a temple, and I want to dwell in it, right? So our bodies are holy. You know, I people, people today, they have no regard for diet. They don't care about the dietary laws. Oh, we're free from that. We're, you know, really? Free from holiness? Free from the experience of holiness? You know, you know be, being separate and different has sizzle in it. Don't you think that? That's true? It is. You know, some, some, you know I, I, have, I have Jewish friends that get all hot and bothered about the Gentiles wanting to be part of the Jewish people, you know? They're bothered because... You know, what it sounds like is the Gentiles are chosen too. And if that's true in the end, if we're all chosen, then there's really nothing special about that. So you guys can't be chosen too. You know, holiness is like that. Being set apart by God and then living in a way that's different from the world around you makes you different from others. It, it speaks of the idea that God loves you, has set you apart, and you're one of his, and the other people are not. 
And that creates some problems, of course, in relationship, doesn't it? Results in persecution because you have dared to be different. Yeah, I remember a long time ago, this guy was saying, you know, there's crabs everywhere uh, out on the seashore and they would go and catch crabs, you know, because they would eat them. And uh, I'm not advocating that. I'm just trying to illustrate a point of holiness. <laughs> but anyway, he says, you know, you know, you catch crabs. You, you have two baskets. They're on your hips. And you, you got to catch two crabs to begin with to put into your basket. Because if you just put one crab in there and you're walking around to get another crab, it'll climb up and climb out. Right? But if you put two crabs in, what happens is, as that crab goes to climb out, the other one reaches up and grabs hold of the crab to try to get out as well and just keeps pulling him down, and that goes around and around. So once you get two crabs in, you're good to go. You can then take your time and get more crabs, you know? That's like the world. You, you, you go to be different, right? You go to begin to live life the way God has called you to live life, and what does the world do? It says, oh, no, you can't leave, and it reaches up and grabs you and tries to pull you back into its place. God's saying, no, 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 no. I've called you to freedom. I've called you out of the darkness and into the light, out of the domain of sin into the dominion of freedom and liberty. That's who you are. So holiness is very important. L living life on God's terms and God's ways is the very experience of holiness. If we want to experience holiness, Diet is one of those ways that we experience that. And it's brilliant when you think about it. It's brilliant because we all eat three, four, five times a day, some of us, right? We're eating all the time. Well, it's just the wisdom of God that he would say, okay, I'm going to give you a diet that's holy, distinct, and separate and different from the world so that you can experience being different. You know, I was just with some believing friends uh, just a day or two ago, and we had ordered some fish at a restaurant. My wife did. She ordered some fish, and um, it just said fish. It was a, a particular dish, um, and it, it just said fish. And so after she ordered I started thinking about that. So I grabbed the waiter, and I said, yeah, could you kind of tell me what, what, what fish you guys use in this dish? He says, catfish. I knew it. I knew it. I, you know, the fact that it just said fish and it didn't say anything else, I thought, you know, I need to ask. Why am I asking? Because I'm holy. Why am I asking this question at a restaurant? Because I belong to God and He is holy. And He's given us a holy diet. So I just can't eat anything and everything. He says, this is what you can eat and this is what you cannot eat. And by doing this, guess what it does? It engages me in this awareness that I am a child of God. It pulls me into the realm of what it means to be holy. So I pulled him aside and I said, you know what, we'll go ahead and go with the ribeye. And we, we did that instead. This diet engages us three, four, five times a day, every day as we follow it, constantly reminding us that we are holy unto the Lord. It's an important aspect of holiness. We're not saved by it. It doesn't give us any merit to salvation. That was never its intended purpose. It's given to a saved people who are already saved through faith in the blood of the Lamb. 
and that saved, redeemed people is given a lifestyle that reflects holiness. They're different. They eat differently. They speak differently. They have different worship days. Why? Because they're holy unto God. It's amazing when you look into this idea of holiness and how God has, you know, given us different realms within human experience to experience holiness. So another one is marriage. He said, you just can't marry anyone you want to marry. How can love be wrong? Well, let me count the ways, right? (laughs) Right? God says you just can't marry anyone. He gave us parameters related to how we marry, why we marry, when we marry. He gives us roles and functions within that marriage, responsibilities within that marriage, and it's holy unto him. Family, the gift of children. Yeah, and he gives us commensurate responsibilities related to how we raise our children. Because what we do with our children and what we teach them is becoming fundamentally different from what the world teaches. The worldview of the world is diametrically opposed to the worldview of believers. So we have a responsibility to govern our children's education, directly or indirectly. But that's our responsibility. Another category of, category of holiness is how to be a neighbor. God has a lot to say about how to be a neighbor. You can't be like the rest of the neighbors. you got to be a holy neighbor. What do holy neighbors do? Well, they love their neighbors and help their neighbors. We're called to do that, to help our neighbors, to be friendly, to, to, to be available, to build relationships. We go, with our, go, go out with our neighbors. They're not even believers, and we have some awkward conversations at times. And uh, we do a lot of laughing, all of us, because it's a little bit awkward. But they know we're, we're pastors. They know that. And they make it very, very clear that they are not believers and they don't want to be believers. But nonetheless, we get together. We go out to eat. We shuffle our walks together. Sometimes I shovel their walks. They shovel my walks, you know. But we do this all the time. I remember our, our last uh, home that we had. Um, our neighbor uh, was leaving, and I was out shoveling some walks and um, he, had, he was moving, so that was his last day. But he came over and he said, you know, um, we're moving. He says, I'm really sad because I've really enjoyed getting to know you. And he says, and uh, the thing that really stood out the most is uh, from the time we moved here, I watched you and Don always helping us, the, the neighbors around you. You were always helping and always nice and always affable. And uh, we, had never, we had never really quite seen that before. And now... I'm going to move away, and, and uh, we're going to miss you guys. And I said, that's all right. You just do the same thing where you go. You just be that neighbor where you go in that place. But yeah, God says, hey, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus. It's part of the code of holiness. Then God gives us holy days. He sanctifies time. He says, some days are holy, and some days are not. And what makes that day holy? God just proclaims it's holy. And then it becomes holy. Do you know in the temple, uh, they had utensils just like you would have at home in your house. But the ones in the temple were used only in the temple for the sacrifices. 
They couldn't be used in any other venue. That's what made them holy. They were set apart for a holy purpose. God does the same thing with days. Some days are holy and other days are common. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Those are called common days. They're common, ordinary days. But the Shabbat, it's holy unto the Lord. He made it holy. In fact, he says, it's holy unto me. It's my day. It's the Lord's day. It's holy. And now I want you as my people to make it holy unto you. So we are to regard the seventh day, the Shabbat, as a holy day set apart for us and our God. Yeah, days are important. Days matter. It's an issue of holiness. If we have no regard for holiness, then keep any day you want. Keep any day you want. Yeah, make up your own diet. It doesn't matter why. You can be holy unto yourself. Yeah. But if you want to experience the Lord's sanctification, if you want to experience your Savior, your Creator, your Redeemer as your sanctifier, the one who makes you holy, then you've got to do it His way. And when you do it His way, you get to experience His holiness, His sacredness. It makes you and me holy. It makes us sacred. We are a holy people unto the Lord. And then finally, God gives us a category of holiness that relates to government, our civil realm, right? He has a lot to say about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's all there in the Torah. In fact, the liberty bill, our liberty bill, right? That our nation just is so highly influenced in terms of the history of the Liberty Belt. They put the words of Moses on it, right? The words of Moses, freedom, let freedom ring throughout the, the nation, right? In their war against slavery on, on our American soil, amazing in every way. So this concept of holiness has different categories, and it impacts almost every area of our lives. We are saved by grace through faith in the shed blood of Jesus. And then we're made holy unto him. And because we're holy, we're then called to live a lifestyle that reflects what we have by grace through faith. That salvation wants to express itself in a lifestyle. And as we walk out the commandments of God, the beauty of that redemption is reflected in our lives. That's holiness. So let's talk today about addressing sin. This is uh, very important. How we live in the realm of holiness. We all sin. How we address it is what makes us holy or different from the world. The world says there's no right or wrong other than what we as a society says is right and wrong. And then we change that along the historical route too, by the way. Every nation does that. They start out with what's right and what's wrong as a society, as a culture, and then they tweak it as they go along. And it always gets worse and worse. No matter how well the start line is, the finish line is always so pathetic, right? There's no universal truth, just your truth and my truth. You know, it's a subjective truth. What's wrong for you is only wrong for you. May not be wrong for me. What's right for you is only right for you. May not be right for me. 
live and let live, right? People of the world say, how I handle my own so-called sin is my business, and how you handle yours is your business. But God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, for the wages of sin is death. That's his truth. That is the truth. He also says, but for those who believe in him, he's provided a way out of the death trap. That's the good news, right? God's love is the good news. We find this in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Probably the premier verse in the entire book of Leviticus right here. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So in other words, the life, this is the Hebrew word nefesh. We translate that as a living soul, right? So the soul of a person is in the blood. When the blood is poured out, the life is poured out. The life is emptied. The soul is released from the body, and the body dies. And God's saying, I've given you the life in the blood of the animal to make atonement on the altar for your souls. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But I love you enough that I'm going to allow you to take another soul, a different soul, and sacrifice it on the altar in place of your soul so that you can pay the debt you owe, the wages of sin is death, and your soul can go on living. That's the love of God, that he would allow us a substitutionary sacrifice that we could actually take another soul on our behalf and give it as a payment for what we owe so we could go on living. Now, that's mercy to us, right? But it's judgment to the animal that's sacrificed. And when you think of animals, and I'm talking, talking about the nephesh animals, animals that have a living soul, Right? They have the ability to think, to feel, to have emotions, mind, will, and emotions. We, we see this in our pets. How many people have a dog or a cat, right? That's a living soul. Can you imagine the impact on you if you had to take your own pet, dog, or cat and slay it because of your sins? How would you view your sins? Yeah, you'd view them differently. You'd think, yeah, this is a big deal. Gosh, I just lost, lost this animal that I bonded to, that I love. You'd weep over that. Yeah, life for life, soul for soul. And because that animal was given on your behalf, justice was met, sin was dealt with, and mercy was extended to those who love God. Exodus 29, 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. This is what's called the tamid, the regular sacrifice. Day in, day out, day in, day out. A lamb in the morning, a lamb in the afternoon, a lamb in the morning, lamb in the afternoon. What for? 
to make atonement for the sins of Israel so that Israel could go on living and the blood of the lambs would cover their sins and they could go on living. Every day, day in, day out, day in, day out, the job of the priest was to make atonement, a covering for their sins so that they could go on living. The lamb becomes the most recognizable blood atonement for sin. It becomes a symbol for atonement. It points forward to Jesus, who is the ultimate atonement. John 1, verse 29. John the Immerser sees Jesus. He's been proclaiming the coming kingdom. The king and the kingdom is coming says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Jewish ear, when he said the Lamb of God and is Jesus, what they're hearing in that is this, that God has a Lamb. God has a Lamb. Somehow God has an atoning device. And it's got to be better than ours, right? I mean, we do these lambs every day. But John's saying the Lamb of God, and he's pointing to Jesus. How is it that Jesus is going to become the Lamb of God and take away our sins? In their minds and in their hearts, they're connecting a thousand dots related to the sacrificial lambs and Jesus being the Lamb of God, who somehow, some way, like the lambs that are slaughtered, will take away our sins. Note well that Jesus doesn't just cover our sins. The blood of the bulls and the goats, they covered sin. They didn't remove it. John says the Lamb of God will take it away. As far as the east is from the west, so shall our sins be taken away. He is the fulfillment of the types and shadows of all the sacrifices. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 20-21 says this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, substitutionary atonement. Life for life, soul for soul. But in this case, what does He say? Jesus, God's Lamb will take upon himself the sin of the entire world. All of the sin of the world is placed on him. In fact, the writer here is not even saying that it's placed on him. Other writers have it, it's placed on him. When you took your lamb in to slaughter your lamb in the temple, you would lay your hands on your lamb. The priest would hold it. You'd lay your hands on the head of that lamb. You'd confess your sin. And in that ritual, what you're doing is you're transferring your sin from your soul to the soul of the lamb. And then that lamb carries your sin. As you cut its neck and drain its blood, they take the soul which is in the blood, the nephesh that's in the blood, and the priest takes it and pours it on the altar. And God accepts that soul as a payment for your soul. Substitutionary atonement. But it's temporary because the life of the animal is temporary. It can only cover, it can't remove. Jesus comes along and what does it say? Not only will he take the sin of the world, he becomes the sin of the world. It says he became sin 
sin entered him. He became sin. He's the personification of sin. That's why earlier in John, um, or later in John chapter 3, Jesus identifies himself with the serpent on the pole. That God told his people, you know, he sent serpents in the camp, and the serpents were stinging the people, and the people were dying, and and he tells the prophet, put a, a, a brazen serpent up on a pole and tell the people, for those who set their gaze on the serpent on the pole, they'll be healed. And Jesus says, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up like the serpent on the pole. And those that behold him in that crucifixion will be healed and saved from sin. Yeah, Jesus becomes sin on our behalf. Jesus becomes the serpent on the pole in his crucifixion. Jesus becomes, if you will, a type and shadow of Satan, the serpent, the embodiment of sin and shame. And then God strikes his son on that cross, thus judging sin in human flesh and blood. His life poured out his soul for our souls. But because his soul is eternal, because he's the son of God and his soul, his life is eternal, it provides an eternal payment once and for all for all of our sin, past, present, and future sins, atoned for, already dealt with on the cross of Jesus. And because his life is eternal, it not only covers, it removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. When you look at Jesus on the cross and what he went through, that's, that's you, that's what you deserve. That's what you're lined up for outside of Jesus. He died in our place to make the payment of sin that we owe so that we could live forevermore. All glory and power to his name forever and ever. I want to read Hebrews in closing. It makes the case that everything in the Torah is a type and shadow of Jesus. Everything was to prepare us for the coming one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It goes on to say in verse 4 of chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the short and skinny is those are mortal souls. So they can only cover temporarily. But they were types and shadows of the coming Lamb of God who could do that eternally once and for all. Hebrews 10, verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus says, you know, God, God never liked sacrifices. It broke his heart. The loss of your own animals, when it breaks your heart, that's God's heart broken millions of times over. But it was the very thing that could pay the debt that we had owed. And then he gives his own son, gives his own son to pay that debt that we, that we ourselves owed. This is the grace and love of God. And Jesus is saying, Father, you have prepared for me a body. You have brought me through that process of begettal, and now I have partaken in human flesh and blood. I have a body. And why? 
Why does he have a body? Why did God give him a body? He gave him a body so that he could actually suffer, experience misery, pain, rejection, shame, guilt. When he became sin on our behalf, God did that so that he could make an eternal atonement for all of humanity. Hebrews 10 and verse 10 says this. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Through his body, he was born to die. God gave him a body so that he could die. God gave him a body so that he could suffer and die on our behalf. And then through that death, we could be sanctified. There's our word, by the way. It means holy, set apart, sanctified. He did that so we could be forgiven and become holy through his offering of himself on the cross. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In Christ, we are made holy. And then what? We become holy. How is that possible? I thought we were holy. We are. And now we're becoming holy. We're made holy through the death of Jesus. And then we begin to live that out. And that holiness then becomes visible and grows. And it says, for us, we are perfected for all eternity. Our sins are forgiven. This is the good news of the gospel. Our sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. My past sins are forgiven in Jesus. My present sins are forgiven in Jesus. My sins this next week are already forgiven in Jesus. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord no longer takes into account. That's the words of David. This is good news. Isn't it good news? Aren't you still a sinner? Don't you still sin? Aren't you glad that God not only forgives your past sins, he's forgiving your future sins as they come into view? That is the good news of the gospel. Does that mean, oh, I'm going to go out and sin now because, man, I've got like grace upon grace. In fact, Paul says, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You can't sin enough to run out of grace. Does that mean you should go and sin? No, because there's consequences and God will spank you like a redheaded stepchild. I don't even know if I should say that or can't say that. I did say that. I'm forgiven. I am forgiven, okay? The point is, is this, that God loves us. And in his son, we are made holy. And now he's called us to live that life. And he's made provision for the process. He's made provision for our five steps forward and three steps backwards so that we can continue on this highway of holiness knowing that we are secure in Messiah and forgiven forevermore. That is the good news of the gospel. That's where holiness originates and begins. We'll talk next week about what that looks like in these other categories. But until then, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. You are the children of God in Christ Jesus, perfected for all eternity. Go take on the day. Shabbat shalom.